For we know that our patchwork heritage is strength, not a weakness. We are a nation of Christians and Muslims, Jews and Hindus, and non-believers. We are shaped by every language and culture drawn from every end on this earth. And because we have tasted the bitter swill of civil war and segregation and emerged from the dark chapter stronger and united, we cannot help but believe that the old hatreds shall someday pass, that the lines of tribe shall soon dissolve, that as the world grows smaller, our common humanity shall reveal itself. Hi all, I'm Jason, co-founder of Architects of Diversity, and that was a snippet from former US President Barack Obama's 2009 inaugural address. And today, you are listening to Seek to Speak, a podcast that aims to empower expression, spark speeches, and instigate ideas. Seek to Speak. Welcome to season two of the Seek to Speak podcast. With me today is Jason Wee, the co-founder and lead coordinator of Architects of Diversity, or AOD for short. AOD is a non-profit initiative that aims to bridge communities and identity groups among youth in Malaysia. Since 2018, AOD has organized camps and workshops for over 300 beneficiaries to address the growing segregation in education and social spaces along racial and religious lines. AOD programs uses experiential learning and create opportunities for intergroup friendship formation to foster greater understanding and the ability to navigate identity-based conflicts and inequities. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today, Jason. How are you feeling? I, I'm feeling good. All right, so we're going to go to the first segment, which is the guest guide. So this is where we'll find out more about your passion behind diversity and inclusivity. So Jason, you're a graduate from Princeton's University School of Public and International Affairs. Amazing. And a committee member of the UWC Malaysia Alumni Association. Your passion lies in the development of interventionist methods to bridge Malaysia's ethno-religious communities. You also do a lot of research on the effect of institutional forces in influencing prejudice levels among schools in Malaysia. Is this how AOD came to be? And why high school students in particular? Yeah, why high school students, right? You know, I, I think very few people um, sit around and say, I want to be a camp counselor for high school <laughs> students. Uh, <laughs> but I guess AOD's story really comes from... Um, United World College. So United mm. World College is a network of schools around the world that um, was founded in the wake of the Cold War. Mm. And the theory behind that was if you have high school students from all across the world going to school together, learning how to work together, um, you can build better foundations for peace. And so I went to the UWC in Costa Rica for my two years of pre-university. And over there, I was in school with, you know, 80 nationalities. Um, oh, wow. It was 160 students. So all of us, you know, had a, like a Spanish-speaking roommate assigned to us. And so it was just really, you know, this huge um, concoction of cult- like cultures and cultural conflict as well. And <laughs> I think over there, um, it was really a step out of the comfort zone. Yeah. And really an understanding of not only just myself, but also about others. And it was really funny because I think for me, I was having this understanding of the world, um, but then not so much in the Malaysian context, right? right. Um, where in Malaysia, you know, you have NS and you have these different opportunities, mm. which, you know, I've been to some of them, but they didn't really provide the kind of content that or structure that UWC provided. I see. And you came from a public school, right? Yeah, I came from a public school, albeit that 
um, my public school is, you know, predominantly Chinese. Mm. And so, and predominantly English speaking as well. And so the, actually the main interactions I had with, you know, uh, Malay speaking communities was through debate. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, through debate. And so I think that was great for me, but, you know, a lot of my peers were not having that, those opportunities for interaction. And so a group of us, a UWC alumni who are, are from Malaysia and went to UWC, mm said, okay, maybe let's do something and bring back this UWC ethos into Malaysia and how can we? How can it be applied here? And so UWC holds um, short courses around the world where mm. either alumni or schools can independently organize UWC-like programs that usually yeah. range from two weeks to a month. So in 2018, um, me and another co-founder, Sangeet, um, who also went to UWC Costa Rica, decided to hold Malaysia's first UWC short course. That wasn't true AOD? So AOD hasn't really been founded at that point. So it was the... AOD was actually the name of the short course. Oh, really? Yeah. Architects. Of diversity. Of diversity. Yeah. And so that name was actually born via, for a vision for what our participants would be, right? That we wanted them to come out of this program, um, being able to go back to your own communities and, you know, construct and, you know, become the architect uh, of whatever community you belong oh, to. Oh, I love that. What What was your your participants? They called themselves Archies. Yeah, <laughs> we call, yeah, they, they called them, yeah, we called them Archies, and slowly they called themselves Archies as well. I love that they died, identify or felt that responsibility that I want to be an architect of uh, how. But how did it become a short cost name to an actual full blown initiative? Yeah. So I think so after the 2018 camp, which in in our I guess in our opinion was was our expectations were blown out of the water. Um, we were so prepared for participants to come in, not engage. Uh, but in, in that one week for, that our camp was held in, they basically built their own community um, where wow. you know, they were crying together. They were visiting each other in different, in different states. After even the camp, after? Even after okay. the camp. And so we were just kind of blown away. And I think for me, um, after that camp, Mm. Um, I said, okay, let's try to make this perhaps a more stable thing and see what other permutations of this can happen. And so in 2019, around June, I said to myself, okay, let's take some time to see where this can go because there's so much space for this in Malaysia. Yeah, I think there's been so many efforts, you know, to bridge gaps, but a lot of them are very either you know nationalist focus where it's there's just, an agenda, there's an agenda almost. Or it's just very instructional. You know, you have your modules of, you, know, you need to learn these values and that's mm. kind of it. Um, these Some programs, you know, you just go there and they expect everyone to be in a room and everything to work out. <laughs> but that's just like really not the case. And so we wanted to enter that space and we uh, I saw no other, you know, NGO or nonprofit kind of doing the same work and said, okay, let's do this for the first time. Yeah, and... Did you did exactly that? Since then, you've touched I think three hundred people's lives yeah. in in a good way. <laughs> Touch. <Yeah>. I <laughs> mean, <laughs> one of your signature Kamuhiba is a program that you organize in collaboration with Angkatan Belia Islam Malaysia as well as Dong Jong. 
that's already very right. incredible that you have like um, such a di diverse NGOs working together. So you brought together 77 students from various educational institutions in 2019 to develop international interracial sorry, connections and improve racial understanding. In the Malaysia Kini report for Kamuhiba, you were quoted saying, I don't like the word unity. I prefer the word diversity. Unity is a picture of we are all the same. As a community, we will always have irreconcilable differences, but it is a skill set of finding out why you have that preference and coming to terms with that. To ask that question, there needs to be differentiation first. So why do you think this is important? Yeah, I, yeah this, this quote, I, I remember like saying it to the journalist at a point, and I, I think I was very much in contrast with... I wanted this camp to be contrasted with the other programs out there mm. um, because other programs, you know, they use the word unity. And I think for me, that's a homogenizing force, um, especially when unity is used as a political rhetoric. Yeah, it is. Um, when, you know, people say you need to be united, but at the same time, ignore that there are structural differences between us, right? There mm. are groups in power and groups with less power. Yeah. And so when you say unity, sometimes those rhetorics ignore um, these important forces at play. And so I would say, uh, that's why I said I prefer the word diversity, mm. because it acknowledges that while we are not the same, this is a value we want to keep. Rather than when unity is being played up, um, yes, you know, similarities are important to, you know, have some form of cohesion. But unity can also be an oppressive force if misused. Yeah, that means you're, you know, even as societies progress, you see the larger or majority groups being, sorry, the minority groups being assimilated into the majority culture because of, in the name of unity. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. when it comes to your activities that you do, do you also highlight not just the commonalities, but also the differences? Is that something that you do? Yeah, definitely. I think if anything, we really just touch on the similarities bit in the beginning and <laughs> kind of move on after that. Um, <laughs> Because a huge bulk of our activities mm. are, you know, role plays in conflict, where we want them to deal with the tough stuff. So, for example, in one of our act, um, simulations we did in 2018 was a refugee simulation mm. where, you know, they represented different parts of communities with completely different opinions on immigration policies. And it was a very, very, you know, oh, intense session. Oh, that's really session. De divisive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's really divisive. And... Because people are going to have different opinions. Um, but then the question is, how do you deal with them? And perhaps that's more important. Um, because with the word unity, you tend to avoid conflict. But conflict is something that's very much, you know, in our nature. It's yeah, so, yeah. It, like, I think it's counterproductive to say that let's not have conflict at all. Yeah, that's um, true. If anything, you know, there, there's great research out there that says conflict is oftentimes beneficial when it moves to clarify and it moves to uphold values that should be upheld. Mm, instead of keeping it on the down low and keeping those views kind of oppressed. Yeah, Speaking exactly. on that question, because AOD believes that Malaysia's diversity is its biggest strength, but also its biggest challenge. In a world where differences can easily divide communities and nations, it is imperative for Malaysia's long-term sustainability that young Malaysians know how to live, collaborate, and work with people of different cultural, ethnic, and socioeconomic backgrounds. That's why one of the big questions that AOD wants to answer 
and you put it nicely just now, was how do we best live in difference and diversity? Do you think you're able to answer that question now or in your journey and your experience with EOD, how would you respond to that question? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question because I, I think myself, I'm also, you know, every day waking up and um, asking this to myself. I think we know, like our answer is in two ways, I guess. The first is, you know, we know something is true that we need the soft skills, right? Yeah. That's why, you know, seek to speak, you know, <laughs> all, all like communication skills, you know, expressing yeah. yourself, learning to really communicate your own emotions externally. All those things are like skills that are severely lacking. Um, and, you know, it, it's a challenge. You know, I face yeah. this every day. It's about also it's oftentimes about these the circumstances and scenarios that we're placed in that allows us to be this empathic people and really communicate how we're feeling. So that's that, that much we know. Mm. I think the challenge and, you know, this is why I think AOD is also moving more into looking at structures outside of soft skills is the harder stuff and more mm. concrete stuff um, where you go into schools and there are instances of discrimination where it's driving segregation happening within communities and within the you know, macro structure of society. So for example, I, I did this workshop in one of the schools TFM was in, in Johor. Mm. And I remember walking into the school and it was a very diverse school, but it wasn't a very, you know, integrated slash cohesive school. So it's a public school? It was a public school um, where you walk in and you can see, you can literally draw a line. The groups. Between, yeah, the Chinese speaking students who were, um, you know, sitting in front of the school and then, the Malay students who were all congregated near the Surau. So, I see. yeah, it was It's massive. so visual. It was too. so visual. It was super visual. And so, and, and you, you, you zoom out and you see that a lot of our society is structured this way mm. um, through British policies and just through historical reasons, right? That policies that governments implemented in the past decades. And those, those that's a hard bit, you know? How do you yeah. move society around that segregation doesn't become a uh, factor in this like discrimination cycle uh, and that that's a part where i think is the like the hardest challenge to face and so can the soft skills we build be enough to overcome these structural challenges and physical challenges that we face when you say structural challenges do you mean that the way the schools are designed in a they're designed in a way that encourages segregation between these um, students or do you think it's Structural meaning literally everything else. It's school, it's uh, policies, it's their parents. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely the latter. Um, and also, I, I guess structural in the sense that it's, it doesn't require one person. If you just remove one component from it, oh, it doesn't I change, see. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, it's just so many, like, um, a sequence of events and behaviors that ultimately create this, like, outcome, right? Mm. It's the parents choosing to send their students to their kids to a certain school it's um, how schools choose to divide classes and yeah. all these different little things that ultimately culminate in this you know in many schools i think a segregated um, community even though it is diverse 
Yeah. So like you said, so even if one person is enlightened and empowered with great communication skills, how much of a difference can that one person make, especially if they're faced every day with conflicting uh, sentiments? I think that's why one of your programs you actually did, um, you check back with them a month later to see if those sentiments stayed. What was the result of that? Yeah. Do you remember? So in Camp Wuhibao, that um, a lot of uh, minority students came in with very much improved out-group attitude ratings. But then when they went back to the communities, uh, a month later would be followed up. And those levels kind of um, went down to the same levels they came in with. Uh, although, yeah, not around the same level. And so I think me and as well as the other researcher, Dr. Nanti, who was working on this, were asking ourselves, you know, that there are external forces at work. Um, it, it might be the home environment, you know, that could be... Um, socializing them back into prejudicial attitudes mm. or it could just be almost a lack of sustained intergroup contact so having just you know three days a nice camp might not be sufficient um, if anything it might be a more prolonged um, societal interaction that's required mm. so you know having integrated neighborhoods and things like that but it's great to know that the camp had a difference despite those long, prolonged social norms that they were that were developed even before they joined the camp. So even if it reverted back, it's good to know that those kind of perceptions can change within that time. Exactly, yeah. So we're actually going to go to a couple of those facts. And in particular is our next segment, Deep Discussion. Here we do a deep dive on a particular issue. And of course, today's issue is diversity. Here we'll be deconstructing and analyzing data from the survey conducted by VASE AI in collaboration with Undi18, AOD, entitled Malaysia's Temperature Check. So according to this report, a majority of Malaysians are actually sympathetic towards economically disenfranchised groups. According to the survey, 86% support the move away from race-based economic assistance to prioritize income-based assistance, and 78% of Malaysians agree that political parties should stop aligning based on race and focus on putting together fair policies instead. Do you think these sentiments reflect the Malaysian political landscape? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tricky question. I've also received a number of criticisms about the phrasing of this question from an academic that, you know, when you're asking Malaysians, what do you think about mixed race parties? Um, one might think, oh, it's like PKR, where it's a single party mm. with multiple races. Um, or you can think about Paris National, which is a coalition of race-based political parties and so that's a tricky thing what are we actually measuring um yeah probably needs a bit of a digger deep but i guess to respond to the question two things can be true one is that you know perhaps malaysia and a majority of malaysians really want a multiracial more integrated political landscape at the same time this could be really low in their priority list I see. So they like the idea of it, but they prefer having higher income. Or <laughs> Yeah, or you know, perhaps it is the racial threat that is oh. either fanned or manufactured that might be prohibiting or encouraging different attitudes at play. All right. So, but this is kind of encouraging to hear that actually in principle whether or not we have the political will to do it, people are okay with having mixed-race parties as well as policies that actually are based on income rather than race. But from the report, it was also found that language-related education policies were the most hotly contested issues, which is 
for example, the status of vernacular schools, language of instructions for science and maths. I think we went, went back and forth on this so many times, PPSMI, and the recognition of the Unified Examination Certificate. So these things split public opinion most strikingly. For example, 56% of Bumiputra Malays agree that Malaysia should abolish vernacular schools like Tamil schools, SKJT or SKJC, while 43% of Bumi Putri, Putra, non-Malays, and 71% Chinese and 78% Indians disagree that Malaysia should abolish these schools. Why do you think that's the case? Why are we so divided on these particular issues? Yeah, I mean, in, in my opinion, and in many other research as well, language has been a huge issue, even since independence. Right. Um, you have the Razak report that very much spelled out like this language policy at play. I think the issue was fanned or became most prominent post May 13 mm. in 1969 because of the, the racial riots that happened then and the subsequent racial tensions. Education policy changed drastically. So not only were, um, Malay educational institutions, you know, more enhanced to uplift the Malay economic status, which was perhaps quite justified at the time, um, the consequence was that immediately after that, um, there was a huge Chinese flight from national schools. Mm. And so actually, you know, SJKCs were almost dying um, around that period. But post May 13, there was a rejuvenation of Chinese schools as a place for, you know, Chinese communities, especially to find almost refuge from perhaps what they what they think of as oppressive policies. And so language policies is one thing, but I think because language taps so deeply into this um, history of political divide and mistrust between racial communities that language becomes almost the forefront of this, is that mm. when you say, um, I want you to learn Malay more than you do Chinese, that's sometimes an erasure um, of, you know, particular identities and oftentimes many Chinese communities feel this way. Why do you think they represent their cultures in the form of language? Like why does it become a representation or an erasure of culture just because we prioritize a certain language? Yeah, that's that's, that's such a great question. And I think Malaysia's if anything, I think at the forefront of mm. this globally. Um, you know, you the cut issue, right? It was it was something. Well, I wouldn't say it's something so small, but you can see how, you know, you always say that politics shouldn't be part of education, but our education policies are yeah. so politicized. Exactly. I, I I know you know if you look at a lot, like a lot of literature in the West where immigrant communities um, come in to these like English speaking English speaking world, mm -hmm. and then you have the immigrant parents who are, you know, their first language is the mother tongue, and then you have their children having the, the language of the country as their first language. Mm. And then you have all these like generational rifts and then splits of communities. And so I think for a lot of minority communities in Malaysia, that's something that's so um, precious and that's something that no one wants to like go off because that really, language is a road to connect to your, you know, your assets, your history, et cetera. Yeah. But at the same time, um, the lack of lingua franca is extremely, extremely um, difficult. Even in like Kemhuiba, for example, I think at some point we were speaking, you were translating. Like, <laughs> we were speaking four languages at the same time. Um, and that's really difficult. And So you had people translating all the instructions. Yeah, exactly. But they're all from 
different types of schools who actually learn Malay and English, right? Yeah, but even then, um, it's just about like what language can you properly understand. So for if we speak in English, mm. uh, for that particular group, the Chinese students could understand. But then in the Malay and Indian students would, you know, be perhaps less um, able to understand the like nuances in the instructions we give. Yeah, yeah. And even for English, you know, a lot of, since the Chinese students came from Chinese independent schools, they might also not capture the nuances in instructions. So oftentimes you're doing like Malay, Mandarin, and as well as Tamil instructions. Well, that's great that you don't want anyone to feel excluded, but how did they communicate later? Right? <laughs> it was really funny. So in this one negotiation exercise, um, we had, oh, where everyone was like, you know, talking over each other because they were all speaking different languages. Which <laughs> it was just hilarious to see. And then after, you know, they regrouped and like, okay, we need to like get everyone in, in the same picture because, you yeah. know, they, they cannot pass the activity otherwise. We had one group. It was just so, it just reproduced like the reality of Malaysia so like succinctly. We had a Malay student, a Chinese student and an Indian student all come up together and then a Malay student read first, then a Chinese student <laughs> read second and then... <laughs> The Indian student read third. And so I was like, oh my God, this is just a reproduction of... And and what were they reading? Or did they read in what like, language? They were reading in you know, Malay, Mandarin, and Tamil. Oh, in their own language? Yeah, so to make sure that they could communicate to their peers in other groups. <laughs> so, yeah, it's so tough, right? Um, and we know that language is power. Yeah. Because whoever is in the know-how that is responsible for communicating information that is very much essential to you know being part of the system that's where language and power lies and so all these different communities in malaysia because they are so fragmented by languages that you know they have some sorts of political allegiances even um so you know how 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 like can you imagine amno ever trying to market themselves to yeah. um, the Mandarin-speaking community. Like, that's MCA's job almost, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's very much about language and power. And by breaking these language spheres, you almost want to, you know, usurp some power from the community. But then who gets more power after certain policy happens? And so I think that's where the whole fear about language policy comes in. Mm. is because it really digs deep into mistrust between different communities yeah. i mean you're absolutely right also that language is not just a means of communication it is oftentimes when it becomes the medium of instruction and you aren't well versed in that language then you fall behind so you're absolutely right that is also an, a reflection of whether or not you succeed in the future and whether or not you understand things so it's great that exactly. you have that different languages and that you guys were able to work together despite that barrier. (laughs) So this survey that we're talking about, the Malaysia's temperature check, uh, it actually involved 1,027 Malaysians and it hoped to help guide public discussion and initiatives that seek to develop answers to challenges of living in diversity. Do you think the report achieved this goal? And I just wanted to ask, what did you find most interesting or surprising about the report results? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it achieved its goal um, in the sense that it helped guide us to putting a number to really divergent attitudes. Mm. So, for example, um, one of the questions about Bumiputra rights or privileges uh, depend, you know, which term you want to use. Even and that's like... Yeah, <laughs> that's even, even that's contentious, right? <laughs> and then, 
So I always thought, you know, there there definitely is a difference, right, between Malay and non-Malay yeah. um, opinion, but the difference was huge. It was uh, on both sides, right? Like Malays are agreeing and non-Malays are disagreeing at mm. rates way more than I thought. It's and almost like we're not even in the same country. Exactly, and but at the same time, you know, you cannot speak about these issues. <laughs> like yeah. no one, no one dares question, you know, bumiputra rights or privileges in the public sphere, and so really. It's this um, almost undercurrent of difference in opinion that will never manifest itself in the policy sphere. Mm. And that's something that I think is great that we have and finally have a number in it. What yeah. I found interesting for a lot of um, younger respondents, they were both endorsing very traditional values of, say, um, uh, Malay, uh, like Malay cultural hegemony and things like that. Younger Malay, younger Malays. That's surprising. Yeah, but at the same time, they were also advocating for a lot more progressive policies. So, like immigration policies, you know, younger folks were a lot more um, approving of friendlier immigration policies, especially for refugees. And so you have these like kind of weird two tensions going on. Mm-hmm. I think, and that really is a question of Malaysia's youth today, right? Where you have um, this community uh, values that you want to uphold, right? That perhaps it's socialized to you, to your family or to your educational institutions. But at the same time, you have, you know, Netflix, you have <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, Western media. Yeah, Western yeah, media, yeah. you know, like they are presenting a completely different set of values, which... Yeah. Uh, the Malaysian or, you know, your family, your Malaysian media isn't, hasn't spoken to. And so those are the sets of values perhaps many people believe in. So I think there's this huge battleground going on um, within the soul of, you know, of the, the, soul, youth, the yeah. soul of the youth. <laughs> the soul of the youth, right? Like it's a, it's a very conflicting one. And yeah. that's why I think, you know, in the, in the current political landscape, it is very dizzying because you have a flip-flop sometimes between like really conservative you know stances and then at the same time like progressive stances and then you're not sure how these people can be the same it's interesting to see that even when it comes to progressive or liberal or conservative views that it's also diverse there like nobody is on either side in a I wouldn't say radical way, yeah. uh, in a homogenous way, yeah. but rather all of us have our own internal. <laughs> <laughs> I say us, but I'm not a youth. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess also one of the main purposes of the survey, um, especially when I, you know, first discussed this with uh, Undi 18, was that you know even these labels that we use, conservative, liberal, um, just don't fit in Malaysia. Mm. You know, right? This like left, right, like it's very arbitrary. It's so arbitrary and doesn't actually reflect um, these divergences we see. I'm surprised that we're not more polarized um, from the facts, but it could be like you said, all of these thoughts are like kind of simmering under the surface. So that's why we don't really see it. Yeah, so that's that's, right. that's really incredible. All right, now we're going to go to our last segment, which is also my favorite segment. It's called Radical Roleplay. This is where we provide the guests with imagined scenarios where they would have to use their communication skills to resolve. So here we have the realities of diversity. So, Jason, 
One of your former camp participants, Kuljit, came to you to talk about how to navigate issues of stereotypes, privilege, and conflict. She finds that she is sometimes subject to certain types of stereotypes in school and realizes that her family also partakes in certain offhand discriminatory remarks during dinner time. She wants to confront her peers in school as well as educate her parents about how untrue and detrimental these sentiments are. But Kuljit doesn't want to cause conflict. However, she feels empowered to do something about it. She also wants to check her own privilege and internal biases. What do you tell Kuljit to motivate her to start this journey of change and understanding? And I want you to pretend that I am Kuljit. Okay. So, hi, Kuljit. Um, hi. Thank you for coming. Yeah, I, you know, I think this is uh, great that you're thinking about this and amazing that you're continuing your you know, effort to become an architect of diversity. Yeah, I'm an archie. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, I you know, for example, I, I think what you're experiencing is something that so many of us have faced, you know, when we are also a victim and sometimes we see our peers, or in the case of your family, perpetrating this um, you know, these problems we want to solve. You know, these are very common experiences. So you're not alone. You're definitely not alone. Now, I know that, for example, you don't want to cause conflict in your mm. own community. But remember, for example, in our you know our negotiation activity, yeah, remember, remember how everyone was screaming yeah. at some point, <laughs> and you know in yeah, different languages, in different languages, and you know remember that. But remember that you also overcame that. Um, remember, some participants were going up and like learning to uh, make sure that everyone had a chance to speak um, mm. their own perspective, and so maybe that's something that um, you want to try out, you know, don't be afraid of conflict, but perhaps give a chance for people to really express, you know, what they think, for example, maybe your, your parents, and then they can, you know, perhaps learn to really dissect their own, you know, emotions better. For example, you know, that one activity we did um, with sharing our stories and mm. our experiences, and then, you know, everyone cried as, as well as after hearing some <laughs> yeah, experiences. It's crazy how everyone yeah. cried in front of each other. Yeah. And so maybe perhaps it might be also useful to um, describe some of these instances to your parents as well. And maybe perhaps um, they can slowly change their minds or perspectives. But, um, you know, this will take some time. This is not a immediate process. So I understand it can feel you know, pretty frustrating mm. that, you know, we, we leave camp and then we all have, we have these expectations that the yeah. world has, you know, want what should, we should be exactly the way it is, should be. But that takes time and effort and that's okay. You know, it's okay to feel frustrated. Make yeah. sure to prioritize yourself first as well. So, you know, if you feel that confronting your friends in school um, is too big of an emotional label, it's okay to, you know, tell your teachers and, you know, tell whoever is necessary to take steps. But perhaps, you know, if you have the capacity, try approaching them saying, hey, uh, what you're saying is not too nice. Mm. Um, and maybe, you know, one thing that really helped me and, you know, many other uh, facilitators is that attacking sometimes isn't the best option, to, isn't the best default. Sometimes it's asking them or just even saying like, hey, can I tell you something? Uh, I think, you know, the words you're saying to me are pretty hurtful or, you know, can you stop saying that? And perhaps, you know, try to understand where they're coming from and why they're saying that sometimes. Maybe you might even make their friend, make friends with them, you know? Um, try, you know, even pulling them away from their group of friends and try talking to them one-on-one, -on -one. you know, like in, you know, in um, a camp where, you know, <laughs> <laughs> where we were, you know, we paired all, everyone up and you were, you did that deep dive into, you know, specific conversations. Yeah. And that allowed, you know, you to be also more vulnerable, but also you to not have the expectations of your other friends. So maybe that's something that you can try. 
Oh, thank you so much. You're absolutely right. It's not easy, but it's okay that it's not easy. And in fact, I don't have to treat them as my enemy, but rather maybe they have the sentiments and it may not be their fault. But and it, that's okay. I can talk to them. Thank you so much. I'll try to do what we did at camp in real life. <laughs> all right, that was radical role play. I'll be sure to put in all of AOD's links, social links in the show notes. So, Jason, at the end of every single seek to speak episode, we always ask this for to our guests: Why do you seek to speak? And I seek to speak to bridge the human condition that has predisposes to viewing the world from only our lens without considering others. Oh, that's so nice. It's the power of empathy yeah. also. I completely agree. Thank you so, so much for thank being you. on the yeah, show. Thank you for inviting me. And I can't wait to see what AOD has in store for 2021. 